Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet, and this is a podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 469th show is Dr. Valerie Touré. Professor of Laboratory in the Professor in the Laboratory of Tree Research at the University of Arizona, who will be talking to us about her book, Tree Story: The History of the World Written in Rings. Our history buffs are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Brett, you get to start us off this time. Oh, thank you, Rick. You are too too kind. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so. Valerie, um, is there a particular time period or geographic area that you focus your research on? Um, time period-wise, I, I really primarily work over the past 1,000 years. Um, it's rare that we go back further in time just because you need the right trees to do so. Um, geographically speaking, I am actually really most interested in climate patterns that govern the climate over large areas. So I'm really interested in in very uh, large-scale patterns. But in terms of doing fieldwork, I think I have two favorite places. One is um, the Sierra Nevada in California. So I have done and I continue to do um, fire history research there, and it's just a gorgeous place to be doing research. And another gorgeous place to be doing research is is uh, Greece. So I've done quite a bit of uh, field work in Greece, and I'd go all back any day because it's just a fantastic place to be. Very many people think, when they think of Greece, they think of the beaches and the islands. But actually, when you go in the inland, uh, in the north of Greece, there's very high mountains with incredibly old trees. Actually, we found the oldest living uh, tree of Europe, we found that up in the mountains in Greece. It was more than 1,075 years old. So, Valerie, I know that for me it's hard to turn off the work portion of my brain sometimes, so my, my wife won't watch history movies with me. Do you find that happening to you if you're, like, in a furniture store or you see um, <laughs> some really nice piece of woodwork and then you find yourself just counting out the rings and trying to figure out when and where it was from? That's that's funny. Um, I have to admit, in wood stores, less so. Like I, I can still look at wood and just see the beauty of it. In forests, though, I cannot go for a nice leisurely walk in the forest without like thinking, how when did the last fire happen here, and how old are these trees, and what species? I, I can't. The forest is is difficult to to turn off my um, professional brain. Yeah. Ed, I'm going to preempt you, and I'm going to ask her a question now. Uh, could you, uh, Valerie, tell us the basic process of how do you get a, a, a core, uh, basically a ring sample core, out of a live tree without killing it? Yes, yes. Um, that's something that I forgot to mention, um, that we don't have to cut down trees in order to count their rings. So what we do is when we go into the field, we bring a, a core with us, a hollow core, and it's it's not very uh, big. It's about a um, quarter of an inch in diameter. 
and let's say, I mean, they, they come in different lengths depending on how, how big your tree is. You need a longer core, obviously, to get into a big tree. But so what we do is we core the core into the tree by hand. This is pretty, you know, it, it, it certainly gives you an upper body workout doing that. So you core the hollow core into the tree and it allows you to extract a piece of wood from the tree. It's about the size of a pencil, more or less. Like I said, a, a sure. quarter of a diameter, uh, sorry, quarter of an inch in diameter. And um, when we take those samples, that doesn't hurt the tree at all because what's important to know when you think of the trunk of a tree, everything that's wood is dead. Wood is not, does not have, is not alive. The only part of a trunk of a tree that's alive is a very thin layer of cells right under the bark. So there's a, a, a very thin layer of cells between the wood and the bark. It's called the cambium, and that's the only living part um, of the trunk of a tree. Of course, there's the leaves and the roots and all that. But so of that cambium layer, we really only, with our, you know, take a, a quarter of an inch of material and so it's it's almost like drawing blood uh from a person it doesn't damage the tree it doesn't hurt the tree yet it allows us to see all to extract all the information we need from the tree does it matter where you draw the cord is there a certain location on the tree uh, you know high low middle yeah, so there are ideal locations in theory. Um, we like to core at breast height, so uh, 1.3 meters above uh, above the surface. Primarily, that is, as I mentioned, it's actually not that straightforward to get a core into the tree. So it's for a, to a large extent that's for convenience, so we can we can put uh, uh, power onto that core. Um, but in practice, to be honest, like we, you core a tree on a very steep slope and you don't want to core when there, where there's a branch or where there's a scar in the tree. So in reality, sure. you kind of core where there's a good spot to core. Sure. Um, yeah. All right. Ed, are you ready? Yes. Um, Valley, I am going to go back to the, uh, the, uh, cold climates where you, um, try and date, um, wood, um, you mentioned uh, earlier in the show that the, the uh, determinant factor uh, in colder climates on tree growth was temperature. And are you able to give a just get a relative re- reading in terms of this year was colder and that year was warmer? Or can you figure out what the actual temperatures really were? That's a, that's a really good question. The relative reading is the easy part. Right, you can tell this year was colder than that year. Um, the harder part is, and that's where there's a lot of statistics that are and, and quantification that comes into play, is is looking at indeed like how much uh, how much warmer was it, you know, a thousand years ago than now, or vice versa. How much colder was it to actually put that into degrees Celsius? We can do that, but for that you need very many trees, um, very many samples, and you need the right tree. So you cannot do that for every location. But if you have the right combination of number of trees and, and they're sensitive, then you can actually and, and you're and you're savvy with with these techniques, with the quantitative techniques, then you can actually, um, of course, with a mar with a uh, margin of error. 
we can actually put absolute numbers on that. And then I assume it's helpful if in this same area you've got live specimens of that tree so that you can determine the actual growth rate, assuming you have temperature records for this location as well. That excellent point. I, I suggest you become a dendrochronologist because you're asking all the right questions. Yeah, so part of it is indeed having very good instrumental data, so thermometer measured temperature data nearby so we can compare them, right, so we can be sure that we're looking at the right thing. Um and then, yes, you do need live trees. Yeah, you, you, you cannot do that with only uh, uh, trees from 100 or 1,000 years ago. You need to be able to do that comparison between the living trees and the thermometer data. Okay, Brett, do you have a question? So you talked about uh, using this to detect things like uh, volcanic eruptions and hurricanes. Uh, what other cli major climate events can you uh, detect using this type of technique? Um, so one thing we looked at was uh, snowpack in the Sierra Nevada, for instance, in California. So anything really that's hydro stream flow, river flow, um, anything that's hydroclimate related. Um, the the thing what I was talking about, um, sorry, the, the topic that I'm really excited about nowadays is I mentioned I like to look at, you know, very large scale patterns, and one climatic driver of those large scale patterns is the jet stream. And I don't know if you're familiar with the jet stream, but it's the winds that blow a very high elevation. Uh, above the Earth's surface. So a very high elevation, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, six miles above the Earth's surface. They blow in an eastward direction across the entire northern hemisphere. The jet stream is the reason that if you fly from the U.S. to Europe, it goes a lot faster than the other way around. Because if you fly from the U.S. to Europe, you fly eastward and you get the jet stream wind in your back. And so you, it's an hour or two faster than, than if you have to fly against the jet stream, right? So, um, sorry, the jet stream orchestrates the, the climate, to a large extent, the climate of the Earth's surface. And so what we're doing now is using... Uh, tree rings from, from, from various locations, not just to study the climate at the Earth's surface, but also to study how that jet stream has um, changed in the past. And that I find very interesting because it's, it's remarkable that even though those trees uh, grow at the, you know, at, uh, on the ground at the Earth's surface, you can use them to look at uh, climatological patterns that happen six miles above the Earth's surface because the, the relationship with the climate is so strong. Valerie, I may have the last question. Who knows, depending on what the producer tells me. Uh, you were mentioning that uh, you take isotope ratios to determine climate, uh, and then you could identify uh, hurricane damage on on uh, stressing on rings. Uh you mentioned earlier in the broadcast portion that, uh, maybe I got this wrong, you can tell of, about volcanic eruptions. Uh, is that true, and how do you do that? Yes, yes, that is true. Um, and that is not so much 
through uh, isotopes, but actually through in, in the ring widths uh, uh, themselves and, and the density of the wood as well. So if you if you think of large volcanic eruptions, and we're talking big ones like um, you know Tubo in 1992, for instance, especially the ones that happen near the tropics, they actually cool down the climate, and that and they can cool down the climate the the climate over the entire Earth's uh, Earth surface um, for for a year, maybe even up to five years. And so what happens when these volcanic eruptions have happened in the past, for instance, 1815 was, was a Tambora eruption in Indonesia. That You can see that in the tree rings because the ring of that year, because it was a very cold year, is going to be much narrower uh, than, than the other years around it. So we can, by, by looking at the width of the rings, you can actually see, especially if temperature-sensitive, uh, reconstructions, you can see which years these big volcanic eruptions happened in the past. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, and it's we... very cool because I'll just add one more thing. Sorry, because the, the eruptions are also recorded in ice cores, like the way we um, count, look at the study of the climate of the past using tree rings. You can also core the ice in Antarctica or on Greenland and go further back in time as you get go deeper into the ice um, field. And so um, these big volcanic eruptions, they would also, they, they wouldn't just cool down the, the temperature, but they also would spew sulfur and aerosols, and that sulfur would fall on the ice. And so as you take a look at these ice cores in the past, you can see those sulfur layers, and you can then... Uh, find a corresponding volcanic eruption in the treatment record. So it's very, very cool. Good, good. Well, we would like to thank our guests for this 469th show, Dr. Valerie Ture, professor in the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research at the University of Arizona, who talked with us about her book, Tree Story, The History of the World Written in Rings. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday night on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previous recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, one word, in the search box. Click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.